Welcome to Dear Hiring Manager, the podcast where we explore the ever-evolving world of tech recruiting. I'm Jacqueline, the CEO and co-founder of Hatchways. In this next season of Dear Hiring Manager, I'm going to deep dive on the other side of recruiting from the lens of hiring managers and recruiters. We're going to talk about challenges, solutions, best practices, learnings, insights, and opportunities that lie ahead in the industry. These are influential leaders in the tech recruiting space, bringing you their unique perspectives and actionable advice to help you learn and stay ahead of the curve. Just before we get started on this episode, we'd love to quickly introduce what we're doing here at Hatchways. At Hatchways, we're on a mission to redefine talent discovery by prioritizing skills and potential over pedigree. Through our customizable tech assessment platform, Hatchways empowers companies to efficiently identify and hire exceptional candidates while providing equal opportunities for job seekers to shine. If you're a company looking to create a more real-world hiring process, provide a refreshing experience to your applicants, or capture better hiring signal, visit hatchways.io to learn more. Now, without further ado, Let's dive into today's episode of Dear Hiring Manager. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So Cliff, today we're just going to talk about all things uh, recruiting as it relates to attracting, sourcing, and interviewing diverse talent. Um, Maybe before we get started, you could just do a quick intro of yourself um, before we kind of dig in. Of course, I'll just stick to like the super high level Cliff notes, if you will. So with myself, I've been a recruiter for about 10 years. I started on the agency side, then I decided to go more of the startup route. So I was with companies like Compass as a second talent hire, Fullscape where I helped to head up our engine product recruitment, and most recently Webflow where I'm a tech recruiting lead. Perfect. Um, and I noticed that you said cliff notes. Is that just a thing that you've always said? Your whole exactly, <laughs> trademark, all about <laughs> the royalties. That's awesome. Um, Maybe if we can just kind of set the stage, why don't we actually start with defining like diversity and inclusion? Like what does that mean to you and what does it mean in kind of the recruiting setting um, that you're used yeah, to? Yeah, of course. So this is what I think of when I think about like diversity is a term that includes all different walks of life. And when I think of like walks of life, I think of like not only like gender or ethnicity, educational background, walks of life because I feel like a lot of times nowadays when when companies say the word diversity they usually mean one or two very narrow things and to me personally diversity is a wide spectrum of things not just like one or two variables but all encompassing whether it's like you know gender ethnicity schooling even or like life experience in general so that's what like diversity means to me Totally. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, and tell me, I guess, why why this is a topic that's of interest to you or why you're passionate about it or yeah, how, how it kind of yep. came to be. So with myself, I've always believed, and you know, this kind of goes back to my college days, essentially, where when I thought about it is diverse groups always produced, in my opinion, better products at the end of the day and also it allowed me to like learn better as an individual so I was a psychology and sociology major so inherent in these classes were concepts where back then it was just in theory but now that I am a member of the talent team now I can actually see it in practice so when I think about psychology it was usually focused on like self and this in combined with my other major sociology this allowed me to really see it at like the org level at the macro level 
So individuals would usually ask me why sociology and psychology double major. And the way I kind of thought about this is psychology is focused on the self, sociology is focused on like the arrangement of institutions and groupings and how that affects. And when I think about it, and like as I was like learning more about the theory behind each, I really saw that by having like a diverse team, diverse company, diverse arrangement of institution, this really led to like the best outcome, not only in terms of like quote unquote like work product, but also in terms of like the psychology of the self. So if an individual is exposed to different individuals of all walks of life, that allows them to be a more well-coached individual than if they did not have those experiences. So taking this kind of that theory with myself as I've progressed in my like different talent acquisition roles, this really allowed me to see like the diverse teams I work with really were just in my terms, better to learn from and better to work with because they weren't like so narrow focus. Instead, they were like really open to like all types of suggestions. And then that's the way a company and even like as an individual, as we grow, is we have to question assumptions and we have to be willing to like learn from all different paths. No, that's awesome. And it's interesting that your kind of educational background ended up kind of blending with your current work. It's kind of one of those things where you can't like connect the dots until you see it backwards, but that's that's pretty cool. Um, cool. So, you know, I think today's conversation, I really wanted to center around like key takeaways and kind of things that people can actually walk away with to actually implement or to actually like action on. And so, um, you know, I think when we think about recruiting, we often think about um, inbound and outbound in terms of, um, you know, inbound getting applicants to apply to your roles and then outbound kind of sourcing talent in, in itself. And so, why don't we kind of start with like inbound and, and thinking about how do you actually attract diverse candidates to apply to your position? Yeah. So what I think about like diversity recruitment and sourcing, I think of it being done in a few different ways, which you just highlighted is like the classic inbound. So inbound is aka candidate applies to company or outbound aka a member of the company reaches out to your candidate. And with these types of channels, I like to think of them in a few different ways. So one way that I really like it's that whether it's like diversity job phase or job boards, just because this kind of goes outside of the standard cookie cutter, LinkedIn, Indeed, and Glassdoor, this allows you to really broaden it. So, so for example, some, some boards that I've used in the past is like POC IT or diversified tech. Those are just some examples of like some very specific niche job boards. So that's one. Also partnering with organizations that support underrepresented groups. So this could be one that are like DEI focused or essentially organizations that make sure that their cohorts or their team members are diverse. So that's another route is really partnering up with these organizations. And they could also be professional groups and organizations. So for example, one of them is like the National Society of Black Engineers or National Society of Hispanic Engineers. Also leveraging products or platforms that really cater to diverse communities. It's, it's another really great tool for like outbound outreach, as well as job, like think to like the job postings themselves. So this is often overlooked, but this is one way that it really helps to essentially attract diverse candidates. It's really ensuring that the job description and the job post, and this goes sound very simple, but if you go on LinkedIn right now, you'll be able to see a lot of companies yeah. who do not follow this. It's really ensuring that the job post in itself uses inclusive language and also highlights the company's commitment to diversity yeah. and inclusion efforts. So like the reason why I like to do this is when you think about it, 
is if I'm a active candidate and I'm applying to a role, my first point of contact with that company is the job description. So if I see a job description that uses, let's just say, very masculine or feminine terms or using non-inclusive languages like must be a rock star, must be aggressive, must be like JavaScript ninja. Like these are very biased and non-inclusive terminologies. Mm -hmm. So me just reading this, I might not even want to apply. Mm -hmm. And some of the more well-crafted job descriptions uses inclusive language and also highlights a company's diversity and inclusion efforts and initiatives. So does this company have, let's just say, ERGs within it? Do they mm -hmm. partner with ERGs of other companies? Or do they even, and then this is something that not a lot of companies do, is really publish the diversity reports. So what is the makeup of the leadership team? What is the makeup of finished product? Not a lot of companies do this, but for the ones that do, this would definitely give that candidate more information to see exactly how front and center DEI efforts are at a company. Because, and I'll touch on this point a lot of times throughout this conversation, where there's no one silver bullet when it comes to diversity recruitment, because if there was, everyone would just copy and paste from each other. But the one key concept that is important across the company, it's really understanding this concept of like intentionality. So I have a bunch of follow-up questions. We talked a little bit about kind of job boards and kind of yep. making sure that you're in front of the right people to get diverse applicants to um, to apply. And then we talked a little bit about job descriptions and how to actually track diverse talent to apply. So maybe on the first point, how do you even go about choosing the right places to get exposure? Um, how did you go about finding some of yep. these places that you mentioned and how does someone go about getting started on that? Yeah, so like the way I actually found about it, and then this is where it helps for me to have a diverse network myself, because mm -hmm. I don't know all the products out there, I don't know all the job boards, but by having a diverse network, I can tap into this to find out that information. So I found out about this through like my own ERG that I was with, just really asking members and just like understanding the landscape of what boards are out there, what products are out there. So the internal employee population, that's one way. Another way I learned about it is just through my own recruiting network. Mm -hmm. And just by being members, just by being a member of like various diversity, whether it's like Slack groups or Google groups, this allowed me to see what other talent teams are using and how they rate their success. So with myself, I always like to try to understand what's out there and what's other people's evaluation of it. So that's the, like a second way. And then the third way is just by really as I speak with more and more candidates, that's really understanding like, you know, where, you know, what do they find most helpful when it comes to like applying? So in this way, it's like not only tapping into the, my employee population at my current company or, you know, my own personal network, but also like the candidates. Because when you think about it, as a candidate is applying, they know what works and what doesn't work. Because this is actually how I found about some of the job boards that I've used before in the past where a candidate is like, oh, I learned about your company from XYZ job board. And from there, it allows me to understand like the quality of it because you want to, you want to go where the quality is. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, something I imagine a lot of pe people think about is that there's a lot of investment into trying to get exposure and put effort into all these individual job boards. And that's kind of probably why they default go to like Indeed or LinkedIn where they just get maximum like exposure. Do you have like a sense of, 
like what ROI someone can kind of expect, like in terms of either cost or time to number of applicants, or even like, you know, by investing in one job board of, of X type, you can increase your diversity exposure by X percentage or any kind of framework for someone to think yeah. about how to what kind of value they might get out of it. Yeah, like so like the way I've evaluated like diversity job boards and, and products themselves is kind of like into two buckets. So you go with the aka the more premier products. So when I think of like premier products, I would think of like a platform like Jobwell or what's another product like Bolton, even though Bolton is not specifically made for diversity recruitment and sourcing, just the statistics of the audience members are basically reflects a high level of diversity. So th those are how to kind of categorize it from the premier products. And then when I think about like up and coming products, how I usually rate the, the effectiveness of these products is just really partnering up with their teams and really just using trial and effort. So I've done this before with some like job boards in the past where I would usually ask for like a three or four or five month trial period. Mm. And then like how I rate the efficacy and the effectiveness of these up and coming products is just by looking like number of applicants that apply and with those individuals seeing like the pass through rates. So say for example, if in a six month time period, we had 100 applicants, let's just say out of those 100 applicants, 10 made it to like an offer. So you have no right off the bat, that's like a 10% RI to offers. And that just really helps me with gathering the data. And by using this data, because if after that six month trial period, we made 10 offers, that allows me when it comes to presenting my executives to actually be able to quantify the RI on a particular product. Because it's one thing to say like, out of reaching a hundred individuals, you got 10% get into offers versus telling like a CFO, like, oh, we got a lot of candidates on on site. Like that means nothing to them. Yeah. It's always best to use data and quantification to help shape the narrative. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to products, you always have to pass it through like finance or the exec team to get their client to purchase the product. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of touched on this, but time horizon, if someone is trying out a new product and seeing, evaluating the efficacy of it, do you have a rough time horizon someone should kind of measure like over what period of time to to see the value yep and then this is what i actually would do like if i was to like negotiate with the vendors themselves because i always like to a lot of times when people hear like the word negotiation they imagine some type of like adversarial like battle where rather it we're on the same team where like the more information i have the more information you have it makes it better for me to make a case to my like exact team or my procurement team so when it comes to like time efficacy, when it comes to trial periods, because a lot of times what I've noticed as I negotiated with vendors in the past is typically they would ask for like only they could only do one month trial period. And then here's where like transparency comes into play, where it's like if I only have one month of data, that is not on me with a lot of data to present to my procurement team. However, if you give me three, six months worth of data, this gives me better business case to show the true effectiveness. And usually that wins over a lot of vendors. Because when you think about it, it's kind of like taking a multiple choice question. Imagine you're in college and you have a final. Would you rather have a final that's worth 100% of your grade and it's one question, or would you rather have 20 questions so you can at least have like more data? Most of the time, most students would use 20 questions because what happened if you said that one question that you did not study? Totally, totally, yeah. Um, curious to know if you have any anecdotes or examples that you can share around things that you've done or or things that you see work really well that kind of improved the inbound diverse applicant numbers that you, yeah. you've seen in the past. When it comes to like diverse applicant like 
numbers, two things that I've seen before in my past, I've not only worked with me, but like also like individuals in my network, it's really not only having an ERG run an event, but also that ERG partnering up with other ERGs of other companies. So what I've seen before work is like when you have like one company's ERG work with, let's say two or three other ERGs and then throw in, let's say like a mixer or a recruitment event um, regarding around like a central topic that often works really, really well. The reason why is, as you can imagine, throwing an event, whether it's virtual or in person, it definitely requires a lot of moving pieces, such as securing office space, let's just say having a budget for food and drinks, speaker fees. And a lot of the times, unfortunately, ERG projects are like pretty small. So by having two, three, four other companies ERGs, it's really well because it's all mutually beneficial where you have, will have more budget, you'll be able to attract a bigger network to attend the event than if you only had like one ERG. So like that's one thing that I've noticed that works really, really well. And it really helps to establish and kind of help make the efforts just not only focus on one company because you have like four companies and then you have those four companies networks. So it, it really allows a, what I would consider like a exponential effect. So that's one thing that I found that really works well. And what's even better, it's even like using that to for like list generation. So like once you have like an attendee list, so you have four companies reaching out to these individuals and that really helps to solidify that those companies in the candidate's mind. The fact that they throw in these mm -hmm. events that oftentimes the events I work and that is run the best, it's really centered around like having great speakers talking about topics that people really care about. So in this way, it not only helps the company, but it also helps these individuals network with each other. So like that's one thing that I found that has worked pretty well in the past, whether it's like in person or virtually. Mm. And quick cliff notes on ERGs. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit what that is? And, you know, also oh, sure. even like what stage size a company starts to introduce ERGs? Yeah, I forgot to define that because I feel like in the startup land, it's, we always abbreviate everything. So <laughs> ERG stands for employee resource groups. So oftentimes an ERG is centered around like one population for them to have a psychologically safe environment and space to discuss topics for a group. So some examples of EOGs. So I'd like, you know, one of my previous companies, it was one for POC or Peak of Color. Another one was for parents. Um, so, so those are just two quick examples of what like an EOG could look like population-wise. And in terms of the size of the company, I actually think that in my opinion, an ERG can be at any size of the company, whether you are a 10, 20 person company or you're like a thousand person company. The establishment of ERGs, it's definitely important because it kind of goes back to this concept that I just noted a few seconds ago. It's you want to create a psychologically safe environment to talk about sometimes some really sensitive topics, especially which has unfortunately happened in the world the past few years where these topics aren't liked. And you need to have a safe environment to even discuss and verbalize these mm -hmm. topics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's, so I like the fact that we're, we're talking kind of, if you can get started at any size, let's say you're a 20 to 30 person company and you don't have ERGs, but you want to introduce kind of what's the simplest, easy way to get started. Are there two to three group or areas that you think best to get started with for, for a particular startup? Maybe tell me a little bit of how to, how to get started. Yeah, like for how to get started, what I usually like to do, and it kind of goes back to just like 
recruiting. I'm not saying I could be biased just because I'm a recruiter, yeah. but it's just really starting with like that. Who do you want to be like that second, like find that second individual? Once you find that second individual, you two try to find and recruit more individuals. And then it kind of starts off that way from the networking. Wait, um, sometimes what I've seen before, like very, very small companies, it's it probably is not possible at like, you know, a five or 10 person company. However, what I've really found, and this is the power of Slack and other messaging groups and kind of content platform, is you can join essentially a group based on that with a sole idea. So what I mean by that is, so for example, I'm part of like a, there are like Slack groups out there that is for like people of color, that are there for like um, Asians, that are there for like all different walks of life. And it, honestly, it's as simple as a siphon Google. So I, I, I'm a fan of Slack. So like naturally there's a lot more mm -hmm. Slack channels in my personal Slack, where you can just type in Slack group NYC ERG, and then you'll find like several of them and you can join. And once again, these are individuals who are like from different companies. So that could be like one way. And then this is one good way to like crowdsource ideas. So if you don't know how to start an ERG, it's easy to kind of join these Slack groups. And there are also like Google groups out there that has like the same philosophy. We just join them, ask how you do it. But honestly, the simplest way that I've seen to really grow and scale an ERG, it happens two ways. One, personally identifying individuals who you know at the company who might be interested in and just simply asking them. And then two, just really posting in any type of like general public channel and seeing if anyone would be interested in joining. And then once you get those first few initial members, one thing that I can really help scale up an ERG once it's made, it's really partnering up with the people team. The, typically, what in my experience is the people team handles onboarding of new employees. So in the onboarding, it's just a simple like slide of just basically calling out like what ERGs are out there and like who's the point of contact to reach out if of interest. So in this way, you not only are, you know, recruiting in current employees, but like as new employees get brought into the company, you're also able to recruit with them because not every company has ERG. So if you're a new person, you're trying to learn like what programs, what new account information. So you might not even know what ERGs mm -hmm. exist, but if it's in the onboarding process, you're able to reach out. So in that way, it helps kind of further scale at that particular ERG. Nice. I like that. I like this idea that you can kind of join an ERG that's external, not even part of your company. And that's a super like lightweight, easy way to get started. Or you can simply just get started. You can partner with one person. You can post in a general conversation, see who else is interested in, in new topics to talk about. So easy way to get started, sounds yeah, like. And, and actually with that, like even like a simple like Google Forms where like not everyone might want to like post in like, a public Slack. So it's a simple like Google Form is like whoever's interested in joining this ERG, like a one mm -hmm. sentence about what the ERG is focused and then you can just have like the submissions be private then you can post and reach out and DM. Awesome. Okay so I'd love to shift to the conversation around job postings. Um, I mean talk to me a little bit about the structure of a job posting and maybe like the ideal format or like you know flow of a job posting that might be um, you know attract diverse talent to, to come and apply to your job. Yeah so now with this particular philosophy that I have when it comes to job description, this, this applies to like a well-written job description and all. Cause like the way I see it, and I've been asked this question a few times in the past, is like, what, how do I make a good experience for like a diverse candidate? And how do I make a great like job description for a diverse candidate? And when it comes to job description interviewing processes, you could have a great process just for a candidate in general. Cause like, when you think about like the core of it, 
and we'll touch on this in a little bit when it comes to interviewing process, mm -hmm. but when it comes to like a well-written job description for like any candidates, here's what I think is really, really important. One, you wanna use gender neutral language. So for example, you might see some job descriptions without what, and you could look this up on like LinkedIn indeed, where in the bullet points, it will, it goes like, he will, he will, like that's definitely not gender neutral. So like using gender neutral language and really avoid using terms that are like exclusionary and uh, also really helping to include information about the company's diversity and inclusion initiatives or whether there's ERGs established. So like imagine like a blank Google doc. So what I would think a good flow for effective job description would be, would be the company's mission and values. Cause when I think about a company's mission and value, this is what like why, why a person joins a company. So you really want to highlight that. Then essentially like, you know, the team description what does the team do? And then like, that's a few bullet points of like, you know, what would an individual do? And one thing that I like and would always advise anyone who's making a job description is to insert a bullet point that basically explicitly states that if you do not meet all these requirements, and even if you meet like 60% of the requirements, you should still apply. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important to call out because it prompts individuals once they see it to still apply, even if they might not check off like five out of five bullet points. Because there's been a study shown, and I think one of the studies is from Harvard Business Review, where certain individuals from certain gender or ethnic classes feel that if they don't meet 100%, they just won't apply. They might meet 90%, but not 100%. So just like a simple problem, once again, sounds very simple in nature after saying, if you do not meet these, you should still apply. I think that's one of the most critical parts of a well-rich job description. And uh, that just really stayed in, especially with like the New York State and California transparency laws. I've always been a big fan of sharing essentially compensation bans because mm -hmm. this allows the candidates to really understand like what does the comp look like and i would say share a realistic ban because not to name companies there's some companies out there that list oh this role could pay anywhere from like two hundred thousand dollars to like a million dollars like that is a pretty big range but if you give like plus or minus like 10 15 000, that's really good and the reason why i like to kind of share compensation bans is once again there's been like studies that show like certain individuals of certain ethnic or gender classes, they might negotiate more so they have a higher salary or higher total comp than individuals who are not from that those same backgrounds. And right off the bat, that leads to disparity. So the reason why I like having the compensation bans is this truly allows for an inclusive job description where even though it's a range, it allows individuals to at least be as close as possible compared to like having this disparity in pay right there. So compensation bans is also another thing that I think in any well-written job description should be done. So that's like some really good elements of a job description. And then if you really want to set the bar extremely high, that's stating what the job is, the job interview process is. Because once again, I've always been a really big fan when it comes to like transparency. So for transparency, if you state the entire interviewing process, it will be a recruiter call, it will be a hire manager call, or on site. This, right from the get go, allows the individual to truly understand what that process looks like. Because the more transparency it is in the job description, the better the candidate experiences. Mm -hmm. And for all candidates, this is what I really think that is really important. It's like this concept of candidate experience, where 
if you have a great experience with a company, the chance of you recommending that company, even if you might not get an offer, it's much higher than mm-hmm. if you get ghosted by a company, which unfortunately a lot of companies do. And it just gives a really bad, in my opinion, impression of a company. Mm-hmm. So like those are just some aspects of good, well-rich and job description, transparency, listing DEI initiatives and efforts, having gender neutral language. That's awesome. Um, I, I am curious to know now, okay, so, you know, imagine all these people, everyone does this right, we write the right job descriptions, we go on the job boards and stuff, but we're still not getting the right applicants. So what is your strategy for just direct sourcing diverse applicants? So when it comes to like sourcing, there's a few different approaches. So one I like to do, it's, and and once again, you cannot rely on this solely, but I, I like to think of this as like additive where you can use this in conjunction with other methods. So one method, and the reason why I say this is a lot of times, especially at like smaller companies, you individuals and companies refer rely on referrals. They are a great method, but you should not rely on them a hundred percent because chances are an individual knows similar individuals to themselves, which does not help with diversity. So that's why I say not to rely on it solely, but it's a great additive effort. So employee referrals is one. And especially if a company has like ERGs established, and especially if those individuals are part of external ERGs, that helps with inbound candidates. Mm -hmm. Another way it's, of course, job boards that focus on diverse candidates, that's great. But then Hayesway comes to how do you actively as an employer diversify your pipeline. So it comes with intentionality. And the reason why I think about intentionality is you just can't post on all these job boards and then be like, my job is done. Mm-hmm. It's not like that. So here's where the concept of partnerships come into play. So I'll break this up into two portions. So partnerships and sourcing, direct sourcing. So when it comes to partnerships, it's are you partnering up with diversity-based organizations? Are you partnering up with HBCUs? So HBCU stands for historically black colleges and universities. And are you partnering up with like women's colleges? So with these partnerships, each of the college, because colleges have great alumni networks as well as like current student clubs. So you can either do like student clubs if it's like more like for entry level individuals or like interns, and you can do alumni clubs when it comes to like mid and senior experience hiring. And and that's across across the board, whether it's HBCUs, women's colleges, or other types of colleges and universities. So that's one level of partnerships. Another level of partnership is, which I touched on earlier, is professional organizations. So that's the second type of Mm -hmm. way you can actively increase representation in the pipeline. A third way, which comes back to direct sourcing, is really utilizing Boolean searches or products that basically has that caters and really focuses on diverse candidates and then simply reaching out. And then this one, there's a few different methods where the recruiter could either like reach out directly or they can use like a multi-tiered approach where the recruiter reaches out for the first time, let's just say no one gets back to them. Then they can, certain programs and products allows this functionality, it's called SOBU. S-O-B-O, what that sound stands for is send on behalf of, hmm. of course, another abbreviation where you can send on the behalf of, let's say you're VP of engineering. So I'll give an example. Say if I reached out to an individual for like a senior level engineer and they don't respond to me after like the first email, perhaps 
a week and a half from now, I will use the Sobo feature of a lot of these email platforms to send it on behalf of my VP of engineering. Because of course, when it comes from an engineering manager or engineering hiring manager, responses tend to be a little bit higher yes. than it says from a recruiter. So that could be like another way. Once again, is this an extra step? Yes. But this is why it kind of comes back to this concept and this idea of intentionality, because you have to be very, very intentional. Mm -hmm. And another thing that really helps when it comes to building diverse pipelines, it's getting buy-in not only from the direct talent team and even the direct hiring manager, which is great, but it's also getting buy-in from leadership and at the exact level. The reason why is a lot of times companies just want to hire as fast as possible. But once again, this word comes back in, you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional about like setting up a diverse pipeline. Does it take longer than if you just to hire the first person right away? In my experience, it does. This is not always the case, but usually if you're intentional about something, it will take longer mm -hmm. than you just do the fastest route. And then this is why it's important once you have the hiring team and the leadership buy-in about the talent team being intentional, where the time to hire might go from, let's say, 40 days to maybe 60 days. But if you have a more diverse pipeline, then it's worth it. Mm -hmm. But you need leadership buy-in. You need hiring manager buy-in. Because it's one thing to say, we want a diverse team. But if there's no intention behind it, then it's just that. It's just words. But if there is intention behind it, is the investment in DEI products, is the investment in understanding that it might take a little bit longer to follow roll. And then there's this other concept of these two things are great, but if you really want to have a diverse team, you have to make sure that you have training. So we talk about interviewing training because the reason why this is very important is a lot of times any type of learning development for internal employees, at least from what I've seen and from what I've heard, it usually is a course to the business. They've seen it as like a line item that, that is a course. So unfortunately, when companies get strict with their budget, unfortunately, a lot of the times L&D efforts, or so L&D stands for learning and development, a lot of times L&D efforts are the first to go. Mm. But how, are you, how is a company supposed to interview diverse candidates if they don't know how to be culturally sensitive. So like a lot of times I've taken like workshops and seminars, which is around how to avoid microaggressions. So not everyone might know what a microaggression is, but I'll give you, I'm, I'm sure like I, I, I've been on the other, I've heard this and like, I remember going to school and back then I didn't know what it was. I didn't know like that was a microaggression, but a, a very unfortunately good example for microaggression is when I was in like grad school, I remember having a professor say like, oh, you speak English so well. Mm. And back then I did not even know what a microaggression was. But when I took these webinars and seminars as part of my learning development program, I was like, oh, that is a microaggression. It seems on the surface level, I thought it was like, oh, that's just like a odd thing to say, but I had no idea that was a microaggression. So like, you don't know, like when it comes to interview or training, you want to like avoid microaggressions. You want to ensure that your interviewers are culturally sensitive to all types of diverse backgrounds. So this is another way that you can practically build a diverse pipeline because it's great to like have diverse applicants, but what happens when it comes to like the interviewing process? If, mm. if we have a diverse candidate and the interviewing process is full with microaggressions and interviews who aren't trained to be culturally sensitive, that candidate will just end up declining the offer or might just end up withdrawing altogether. So 
Another way a company can really help increase that diversity pipeline is to really make sure that interviewers and interviewing process are trained to be inclusive and culturally sensitive. And even going back to ensuring that the interviewers are basically that it's a diverse set of interviewers. Mm -hmm. So let's just say if you have a company who's interviewing, for the sake of this example, a female engineer and it's eight white males, that's not necessarily the most diverse interviewing loop right there. So companies have to really think to like the process and the framework. Uh, when we get diverse candidates in the pipeline, are we set up to succeed? Are we diverse? Are we trained? Because once again, going back to this concept of candidate experience, where candidate experience really dictates whether individual help join a company. So those are just some ways mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, like when it comes to like how can a candidate attract diverse candidate. It starts, and and as you might notice, this kind of goes throughout the entire pipeline from like the job description to the job boards we posted on to the partnerships we have, to the active sourcing that the recruiting team is doing, all the way to the interviewing process itself. Totally. It, it's such a multi-step and like so much to think about as a whole. Um, before I ask follow-up questions on interviewing processes, because I have a lot there, yeah. um, I wanted to do a follow-up on the sort of sourcing products that you mentioned. So you kind of mentioned there's a lot out there that you can do um, Boolean searches and um, send on behalf of like, what are kind of your favorite products and tools that you use for that? And can you also just give a very specific example of like some, how you've used it, like to source uh, or fill a, a funnel for a specific role yep. for, for a diverse candidate? Yeah. Yeah, of course. So I'll use LinkedIn. So LinkedIn, how I use LinkedIn Recruiter is as an aggregator. So I don't really use in-mails as much, but I use LinkedIn to basically just aggregate the profiles. And then I usually use like an email tool on top of LinkedIn to send out like emails. Okay. So some popular tools out there are Interseller, Gem, Intello. So these products are essentially like emailing candidates. Once they respond, it stops the sequence. If they don't respond, you can set the time interval to follow up with another email. And within these products, they usually have that Sobu and Sender behalf feature. So those are some examples. And one of like the best examples, and I'm glad that like LinkedIn included this in this search, because like a few years ago, this was not a functionality they had. It's you, there's a filter where you can search for military and veterans, where if you just click on that, a lot that allows you to get individuals from a military or veteran type background. And that that's built within the LinkedIn product. Mm -hmm. It's not apparent because you have to go through advanced features on LinkedIn Recruiter, but that's like one of the functionalities that I really like to yeah. use. Because once again, when I think of diversity, I like to think of it being multifaceted and that's one product that I like within the LinkedIn recruiter ecosystem that they've included. And um, are there filters? So you kind of mentioned like the military and veteran, but are there also filters for other things people care about when it comes to diversity, like gender or like, so, yeah. So at the moment, I think that there's a few features on LinkedIn's product roadmap or how I do it on my end. It's really utilizing colleges so like of Got course it. when someone fills out their linkedin profile they have a college section so what i would do i would actually look up the top xyz colleges like hbcus women's colleges and then from there i'll funnel it now does this give you a hundred percent of this you might meet your diversity criteria no but it definitely gives you a lot more than if you did not include those Got colleges it. Got it. Okay, awesome. Before we kind of get into the interviewing um, experience where an applicant 
um, just to kind of summarize like inbound and outbound yeah. applicants, if someone wanted to get started and start like, like start now, what are kind of the two to three things you recommend, like just to easy things to get started uh, to start implementing? Yeah, I think right away, some what I would consider low hanging fruit. And when I mean long low hanging fruit, I mean methods that do not cost ten thousand dollars to implement. Yes, yes. So what I would recommend it's crafting a really well-written job description. Okay. Now, this I've always been a fun believer where if you want to build a good recruiting process, the job description is kind of like the foundation. So even though it takes slightly more time, you want to make sure you have a strong foundation because nothing's worse than having like a half-written job description and then you build a recruitment process on it because totally. you're not setting yourself up for success. So having a well-written job description and it's easy as in Google typing how to write a great job description. Mm -hmm. And then they'll mention a lot of the stuff that I, I've said. Um, but yeah, step two would be with the Slack or the Google groups, find groups that are focused around diversity and inclusion efforts. The reason why I'm a really big fan of that is I have like a learning mindset where if I don't know something, I will go to an, an individual or group who knows more about it than I do. So this is how I was able to really learn about these strategies, these methods to help diversify and pipeline is I would just ask individuals in these ERG groups in these Google groups on like, how do you set up one? How do you scale out one? How do you get more membership? Just simply asking. I find it helps. Once again, it sounds very simple. Just ask someone for it, but yeah. you, you'll be surprised how effective it is. So those are like the two ways, very okay. low effort and it's easy as how to join an external ERG, Slack group or Google group, join it, and then simply start asking and just inquiring. Because I find if there's one thing that has helped me is once you have a genuine curiosity mindset, people would definitely respond to you. Yeah, no, I love that. And I might follow up and ask you specific like ERG groups that you like, um, but I'd love to get into kind of like the interviewing experience. Like, you know, assume people nail the inbound and outbound strategies you mentioned. We don't want to lose the applicants in the interview process. So uh, let's talk a bit about the interviewing experience. How do you create a really solid interview experience that's inclusive and a positive experience for diverse candidates? All right. I actually really love this as much from a like process and framework perspective. So with this one, this actually has a very similar start as it is on the job description side. Just like you need a good strong, just like you need a good job description to build a recruiting process on, you need a good interviewing process to build a great interviewing process. No surprise there. So once again, a lot of this would always ensure to have a very expansive and informative process. So on the interviewing process, too many times companies do it on the fly or ad hoc where they don't even have a question bank. They don't have a rubric. So one of the most important parts from an interviewing process is to make sure that it's standardized across the board. Very simple in, in principle, difficult in practice, especially with the smaller companies who are you know, always in a rush to hire. So the reason why it's very important to have a standardized interviewing process is it gives you the ability to evaluate on a consistent and on an unbiased platform. And in conjunction with a standardized interviewing question comes the standardized interviewing rubric. Because it's one thing to have interviewing questions. That's great. 
But the more people you have in interviewing process without a rubric, the more inconsistency exists. So I'll just give a basic example with like an engineering coding example. So let's say we have engineering A and engineering B. And uh, engineering A individual is a very quote unquote strict interviewer. Engineering B interviewer is a, like very laid back interview. If they have no rubric, what might be a reasonable answer for person A might be an extremely great answer for person B. But the fact that there's no consistency in the rubric created, that would affect whether an individual gets an off or not. Right off the bat, you want to remove as much bias as possible. And it starts with, once again, very simple in principle, have the same interviewing questions, have the same interviewing rubric. And the reason why the rubric is important is it establishes consistency, not only with the current interviews, but as the team grows, as the company grows, you want to onboard new interviewers. And that allows the most consistency if the standardization of both questions and answers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's step one. Like before, ideally before you, uh, the recruiter or before the job is even posted, this is necessary because too many times you might have, oh, I have a great candidate. And then the hiring manager speaks with the candidate, but there's no questions, there's no rubric. So then it's it's done way too inconsistent. Mm -hmm. And it's not set up for success on either the manager end or the candidate. So that's step one in the interview process, consistent and standardized interviewing questions and interviewing rubric. The second part comes back to what I was just briefly touching on earlier is ensuring the interviewers are trained properly. So this is not only in terms of like what questions you can or can't ask, but also being informed about what are microaggressions, how to be culturally sensitive. Because there's been some times, even in like my personal experience when I've been interviewed with like not only the, oh, you speak English really well, it's, oh, what year did you graduate? Mm. Like that's not allowed to be asked. And even till this day, uh, a couple of my friends who are interviewing like last month at a particular tech company, they were asked what year did they graduate? And to me, I'm like, oh, no one would ever ask this, but clearly I'm, and unfortunately I'm wrong. So it's important to have your interviews trained on what they can ask and what they can't ask. So that's part two, making sure the interviews are trained properly. And number three is that's really ensuring that individuals are just knowledgeable and like culturally sensitive. And uh, when you have those things, culturally sensitive and inclusive company behavior, trained interviewers and standardized questions and standardized rubrics, those three things really leads to a consistent and unbiased interviewing process. And what a company can do once again further is transparency when it comes to the interviewing process. Now, the reason why I like transparency in the interviewing process, let's just say a role has recruiter screen, hiring manager screen, on-site of four interviewing rounds. The reason why I like to be so transparent about that is this prevents the company from, let's just say, introducing a second on-site round for a candidate. And right off the bat, it goes back. If it's not standardized and it's not consistent, you set in the process up for failure. Mm -hmm. And so this is why I think standardization, transparency, inclusivity, this is what will kind of stick that bar higher. And if a company once again wants to do even like one step further, have like a great interviewing process, it's really ensuring that the interviews themselves are as diverse as possible from all different walks of life, 
and educational backgrounds, gender, ethnicity, with that, that would really show to an individual how important diversity is. Because uh, honestly, um, can can all companies say they have such a process? No. Uh, can all companies say that they are as diverse as possible? Of course not. And if they aren't as diverse as they can be, and if they are lacking diversity, sometimes the best way to fit actions behind the word is to actively recognize it and to even hold themselves accountable. So mm. this is why like one idea I really like is when a company publishes the diversity report, because this holds them accountable, especially if they bid a company's OKR. So OKR stands for objective key results. So if they tie in one of the OKRs to diversity hiring, then that shows great level of intentionality. So no longer is it, we will try our best. Because once again, it kind of goes back to vague, broad statements versus action. So imagine these two companies. Company A will try our best to diversify a team. Company B, by December of 2023, will ensure at least 15% of our workforce are diverse. Two very bold statements. No, that's a really good point. And you kind of um, mentioned a little bit about how to make, or like this idea of making interviews itself more diverse friendly. Can you talk to me a little bit about, you know, your past experience on what's worked well in, in creating an interview uh, more diverse friendly? Yeah, when it comes to this, I, what I like to do is, once again, it's always great when uh, you have the hiring manager buying because that makes it like even easier. So one thing that I have seen work before in the past, it's really allowing multiple touch points. So what I've seen work as well is, say, for example, a candidate gets to the office stage. So instead of just doing the typical, if you want to speak with a hiring manager about like the role, happy to kind of schedule that. One thing that I've seen work quite well is offering them a chance to speak with an ERG elite. Because like right off the bat, think about this, like from yourself, from the people you know, usually after an offer, any company would be like, hey, if you want to speak to our exec, if they're small enough, or if you want to speak to the hiring manager, we'll set that up. How many times have you heard about a company setting or at least offering the chance to speak mm -hmm. to an ERG lead. I have not, honestly. But by me offering that to individuals in the past, I really actually even had a positive comments where they where candidates have said, never has a company really offered me a chance to speak to an ERG lead, especially um, part of like the office stage conversation. So ERGs must be pretty important if they even have the ability to speak to offered mm -hmm. candidates. So that by themselves, they will quite impressed with that. And this gives a company the chance to further solidify the intentionality and how strongly they feel about it. Where one thing I've seen that work well before in the past is when sending an offer recap to a candidate, just be like a quick summary of like all the different ERGs at the company and what those ERGs, what their mission statements is. And if they want to and let me know who you want to speak mm -hmm. with out of this group and I'll schedule that. And because like when you think about it, a lot of times offers are usually from my experience, just compensation related and hiring match related. But once I added ERG related, it definitely allowed them to see as a more comprehensive process, especially just understanding the importance of what an ERG and what diversity meant to that company. That's interesting. I actually have never heard of that one either. That's a good one. 
Um, we've talked a little bit about this before, but can you tell me a little bit about your opinions about take-homes as part of the interview process and why or why not this is um, better for better or worse for diverse candidates? Yeah, so with myself, and once again, I just want to do the usual disclaimer. This is us based on my personal opinion uh-huh. and from individuals in my network. So what I, my opinion on when it comes to like take-homes are take-homes as it stands, at least for 95% of companies out there, they're often just used as a screener. So what I mean by a screener is if you pass this stage, now you get to really interview with us and we'll never speak of the take-home ever again. That is a poorly designed take-home, to be quite honest, because oftentimes I've seen it be administered before a candidate even speaks with anyone from the company or right after the recruiter call. So before a candidate has a chance to connect with a new one, so the, the take-home be, test be sent? Absolutely not, because it comes up, in my opinion, so impersonal. Now, after a recruiter call, with the take-home, it has to be relevant to the job, and an ideal take-home scenario would be representative of the day-to-day, and hopefully be included in the on-site. So I'll give an example. Once again, I'll use an example of engineering take-homes, just because in my experience, typically engineering product lines of business have the most take-home assessment sense. Mm-hmm. So my ideal process with what I think would work the best it's, a, it's two variations. So variation one would be a recruiter call, hire manager call. And on both the recruiter call and the hire manager call, both of them will reference the take-home that would be sent out to the hire manager call. So in this sense, the candidate will at least have the chance to speak with two members of the company, ask a lot of questions, especially from the hiring manager, and make sure that the, the take-home assessment accurately reflects like a day in the life of instead of like a lead code style question that no one likes. Mm-hmm. So that's variation one. Variation two, very similar recruiter call. And then if the recruiter sends the take home afterwards, in that situation, how the interviewing process should be done is at least one session of the on-site should be dependent on the take home. So in this case, and it helps when the recruiter is explaining the process to the candidate where after this call, there'll be a take home. However, this take home would be actually one part of the actual on-site that will be referenced. So in this way, the candidate feels it's less of a screener and more of like an actual work artifact that will be used in the later process for interviewing with the company. So that's how I stand on take homes is one, it's to be relevant to the job and not be a lead code style question. And two, it's to be used less of a screener and more actually embedded into the interviewing mm-hmm. process. Why do you think this creates a more inclusive experience for for applicants or attractive risk candidates? Yeah, the reason why, and once again, this is just for like, when I think of it, it's interviewing, it's kind of like an imperfect process, in my opinion, because when you really think about it, let's just take a step back before I answer that question. When you really think about it, most interviews, you're given basically, let's say, four to five hours to assess whether an individual will succeed as a company. That's it. Like four to five hours, it takes Amazon at least one to two businesses to get to me. So how am I supposed to accurately assess someone to join a company, hopefully for years at a time in less than five hours? So I think it's an imperfect process. But to get back to your question about the take home itself. So not every individual 
would be set up for success and with on the spot life code and on the spot system design. Because when you think about it, like with, and once again, this is just reflective of like my, at least from my experience of interacting with engineers and product, where very rarely are they only give it one hour to solve a problem. Unless this is like a hacker style TV show where they have to hack into the mainframe. Unless it's that, then that is totally another story. But most of the time when an engineer and product manager is given like a problem, they give it time to like really like digest it, understand it, and work at it at least on their own pace, similar to like a take-home assessment compared to you have 30 minutes to come up with a product. Like I've never seen an engineer only have 30 minutes to solve an actual real world problem. So that's why I think take-home assessments lead to more signal and a preferential working style. Cause like I said, not every individual could code, can do pay program. Like if this is a pay program and you give me a problem, I have like 20 minutes and you're just like sitting there looking at me. Not everyone functions under that environment. Mm -hmm. So this is why I think like giving an individual take home, this allows them to solve it at their own time. So for example, what if I code better on top of my bed? What if I code better on my couch at like 6 p.m. after dinner? Like it allows more different working styles mm -hmm. that, okay, your schedule at 1 p.m., go. Yeah. Like not echoing my book that way. No, that makes total sense. Um, maybe two last questions before sure. we wrap up. One, because I I thought this is super interesting as you kind of gave some tidbits throughout the conversation about things that you see people still do that, you know, are not inclusive for diverse candidates, things like these microaggressions, things like mentioning he in the job posting. What are kind of like the like top two, three things that you think people do get wrong most or that kind of really annoy you when you see when you see whether it comes whether it's sourcing or or job descriptions or in the interview process kind of things that you feel like people get wrong yeah I think like some of the things that I feel a lot of times individuals get wrong it's using a, a laundry list where I look at a job description and I see 18 bullet points I'm like well I'm pretty sure no one has this at all so making the job descriptions too long that's number one. Mm. Number two, I would say is using these very, in my opinion, exclusionary or biased terms like JavaScript Ninja or Excel Ninja. Uh, for me personally, like I just find that like, I, I don't understand. Like I get why companies do it because I guess it makes it sound cool. Like. I think this one, I forgot where I read this. Unfortunately, this is a real example. I'm not going to name the company, but it's like, must be an expert at finding purple squirrels. Like, I guess they were trying to say like a purple unicorn, but they, I guess, decided to change animals. And I'm like chasing a purple, like that, that should never be in any job description. If we were talking about a joke of a job description, absolutely, but like must be an expert chaser of purple squirrels. So... Yeah, using language like that is number two. And then this one comes from like more of like the interviewing process. It's a lack of a question bank and a lack of a rubric because how are you supposed to evaluate a candidate if you don't have questions or if everyone asking their own questions and they don't even have a rubric? Because like then it just becomes like a feeling. And I'll give you an example. And this is advice for anyone who is viewing this. Never schedule an interview at like Friday at 4 p.m. because <laughs> that might not set you up for success. So if I'm interviewing at 4 p.m. on Friday and this individual has no interviewing questions, no rubrics, 
what if this individual just got some bad news? And this pissed me at like a disadvantage because like now it's all about a feeling. So with consistency, with a question bank, with a rubric, it makes it less about feelings and more about actual evaluation methods. Oh, that's great. Um, we talked about so much and we covered a lot. Is there anything that you felt like we missed or any last things that you want to mention um, as part of this conversation? No, I think we covered a lot. Um, can we talk more about this topic, of course? So hopefully that will be you. Um, but yeah, I appreciate you having me on. That's awesome. And um, I know you mentioned earlier, like there is not really a silver bullet to recruiting diverse candidates. And, you know, for every company, it's very dependent on the company where they're at and, you know, it's kind of custom to every company. So if people had follow-up questions or wanted to reach out to ask you more about this topic, where is the best place people can reach out to you? Yeah, I think the best place would for people to reach out to me would be on LinkedIn and a simple like in-mail or connection request. I check my LinkedIn almost every single day. So that would be the best way. Perfect. Great. Thank you so much too. I hope we have a part two as well at some point. Awesome.